and welcome to the Famous Five podcast, in which we share with you a Famous Five adventure written by Enid Blyton. Today's book is Five on a Hike Together. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to be subject to spoilers, please turn off now and come back when you've read it. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Really good, yeah. We're on book 10. I know. Can you believe it? That means that we've been making this podcast for 10 months, which is almost a year. Over 10 months, because we missed a month, didn't we? That's true, yes. We've been making it for 11 months. And actually, this month's one is a little bit late, because this is, strictly speaking, the April episode but we had a lot going on in April, so I do apologise if you felt disappointed that the episode didn't come out at the end of the month like you're used to, but it's here now. It is, hello. Hi. What have you been up to? Well, I've got some news. Okay. I'm having a baby. Wow! Congratulations! Thank you very much. It's quite funny, really, because you've congratulated me in real life... (laughs) And on another podcast, and now on this one, but it's always really fun. I think I'm just going to continually tell you so that you have to congratulate me every couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea because even though I have congratulated you in real life and over text and, you know, all sorts and on another podcast, indeed, when you say I'm having a baby, I don't feel that I can just, you know, be like, hmm great you know because other people don't know that I've already acknowledged it that's true and it's sad if you say it and nobody says anything so I speak for the listeners when I say congratulations really excited for you thank you very much are you gonna call it Jen Junior um are you gonna call it George because that's a boy's or a girl's name just say it or Timmy the dog (laughs) after my favorite character Uh, well, baby's not due until October, so I still don't know if it's a boy or a girl yet. I can't have the name George because one of my nephews has that as a middle name. So that's kind of his and he'd get a bit upset because he's only three. And that's his name. And, uh, I don't think I'm going to go with Timmy the dog as a name. Okay, but Jen Junior is still on the table. Jen Junior is on the cards, yes. JJ. Okay. Jen Jun. <laughs> I love it. In other news, uh-huh. one of our listeners, Jason, his son, Joshua, shout out to you, had a birthday and he had a famous five birthday cake, which was absolutely awesome. And if you want to see it, head over to Twitter and you can see the photo of the cake that Jason sent us. That is really exciting. Happy birthday. And I am going to go and have a look at that cake. As soon as we've finished making this episode. And it has reminded me I need to put up the photograph of the Famous Five cake that I had. Ooh. I've never had a Famous Five cake yet, but, you know, never say never. And um, last year I had a My Little Pony cake. The year before I had a unicorn. There is no reason in my adult life why I could not have a Famous Five cake in the future and I hope that makes other people feel cheerful because it makes me feel very cheerful. Agreed. This episode we have read five on a hike together. I wrote it down in my notes as five go on a hike and I was like oh what? 
but actually looking at the book, it is indeed called Five on a Hike Together. And I will just, I'll just change that here so that when I look back in the future years. Yes, we've read Five on a Hike Together, which is, it was a fun book, but I was just saying to you earlier, it felt a bit of a strange one. And I was saying it felt very quick, I felt. I think it got quick towards the end, but there was an awful lot of, oh, we're in this village. Oh, we'll have a cup of tea here. Um, and a really strange contrivance to get the five together, which I didn't think was necessary, which we'll talk about in the first chapter. Oh, yeah. Well, let's um, let's crack on. Let's find out what happened in Five on a Hike Together. So here is my synopsis from the back of the book. It's half term and the five are going hiking through the woods and up the hills. But when Anne and Dick take a wrong turn, it, it leads them all straight into danger. An escaped convict is on the loose and passes a strange message to Dick by mistake. A stash of treasure has been hidden nearby. Will they discover it before the prisoner strikes again? That's really interesting because I thought we were reading the same version because we have the same illustrations and they look the same, but... My synopsis on the back of the book is a lot shorter than yours. Mine just says, Why does an escaped convict send a message to Dick in the dead of the night? And what can the strange message mean? The police refuse to help, so the famous five must find out for themselves. Mm. Yeah, but apart from that, our books are identical because we were just looking at the illustrations together earlier. Well, mine is a full set, so I'm wondering whether when they put the set together... They just altered the blurbs a bit. Ah. I can't tell if mine is part of the set or not. It doesn't have a price on it. But anyway, let's 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 crack on with the okay. hike. Chapter one. The boys have been given a few days off over the girls' half term because someone won a scholarship. Julian has written to Anne and George to suggest they meet up and go hiking. George and Anne tell Timmy the news and Julian telephones and Anne deals with it as George would just chat on about Timmy. They're travelling light because it's a proper hike. Yes, I had to put a note in, I mean, page five, which is quite early even for me. Julian has given them a very strict packing list. I would like to read it to you. I think you'll agree it covers just the essentials. Julian says that he and Dick can get off immediately after breakfast, said Anne. So can we, so that's all right. He says we've got to take very little with us. Just night things, toothbrush, hairbrush and flannel and a rolled up mac. And any biscuits or chocolate we can buy. The essentials for any trip. Did they say towel? No. Okay. Maybe they keep half the flannel dry and use it as a towel. Okay, well, I'm going to come back to flannel, but not for a long time. Okay. They tell their schoolmistress the change in their plans. Julian has been looking up little inns and farmhouses for them to stay in. <laughs> the girls pack... George combs Timmy to make him look spruce and tidy for Julian and Dick. And they set off. Goodbye, Anne and George, yelled one of their friends, who doesn't actually get a name. <laughs> Have a good time on your hike, and it's no good coming back on Tuesday and telling us you've had one of your usual hair-raising adventures, because we shan't believe it. And a modern-day equivalent of that is pics or it didn't happen. That's what the young people say to each other. That is what the young people say to each other. Yeah, I mean, they do come back with wild stories from every school holiday break weekend, half an hour off ever. So I can see why perhaps their fellow school children wouldn't believe everything. But also when I read that, I thought, oh, that's a bit 
bit unkind. They're telling lovely stories. Just believe it. But surely they make it into the newspapers. Oh, Like yes. four children and a dog catching criminals. Surely that would make it into the news. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. And this one certainly would. Anyway, we'll get there. We will. In chapter two, Julian and Dick are talking about good old Willis and Johnson, the swatters that got the unspecified medals and scholarships resulting in their long weekend. They're pretty mean about the boys being bad at rugger. Julian and Dick take the bus to Pippin Village, but as the girls aren't there yet, they have an orange aid in the local store. Julian greets George by saying she looks fat. No, Julian, (laughs) no. He then charms sandwiches out of the shopkeeper. Her son Jim arrives for his own sandwiches and asks them to pass the message on to his mum that he's got to take some stuff to the prison, thus establishing that there is a prison out on the lonely moors. Then a smelly old man with a pipe buys blancmange powder, and even though he has a name, Old Gups, <laughs> he's not relevant to the story and never heard of again. But he loves blancmange. They take their hundred sandwiches and free cake and set off. Now, we had this in Five Go Off to Camp, where... I mean, it was a bit more in-depth, but it established the character of the old uh, farmhand and then never referred to him of again. Of course. And I think, I think that was... I couldn't remember this book as well as I remember some of the others. I remember the TV show version better. And I thought, oh, maybe this character does come back, but nope. No. Just ha- at home, having blamange. Yeah, just having blamange. Also... You did mention that Dick and Julian sort of bash these other children we hear of, Willis and Johnson, saying they're they're not good. Oh, how awful they were at Rugger, blah, blah, blah. And I thought we also had this actually in the same book where we had the farmhand who was a big character for half a chapter and then never came back. In Blyton's There's Only One Way to Be a Boy storyline, and we did discuss it's not cool, and... There is a bit later in this book where Julian talks about being rich and he isn't going to be rich just by being good at rugger. He needs to be a bit more academic too. So that's what I have to say to you. Well, Jew. I thought they want, one of them wanted to be a scientist and one of them wanted to be a doctor. So you don't get those jobs by playing rugger. <laughs> Julian's had a weird growth spurt and he's only into sport now. Okay, are we going to mention Julian's growth spurt now? Yes, let's do it. I can't hold it in any longer. Whilst I was reading, now the illustrations, there is no doubt about it. They are beautiful and they're very recognisable as being by Eileen Soper and they're synonymous with the famous five. However, in this book, Julian has suddenly morphed into a 40-year-old <laughs> man in a shirt and tie. Yes. And unfortunately, we've found it very amusing now we don't have this podcast to take the mick out of the famous five we adore the famous five and everything that goes with it but we can't help giggling at the fact that (laughs) on the front of the book all of the children except for Anne look like adults and also within the book Maggie is definitely depicted (laughs) as a man in a suit now we don't know if Eileen Sopo had got misinformation maybe she had to do the illustrations before the book was written and therefore it was going to initially be another man I don't know but it has tickled us throughout this book and we have sort of (laughs) gone back to other books to see what the children used to look like 
And they look dramatically different to this book. Yeah, we'll have to put some of the pictures on Twitter because they, they are funny. There are a lot of shots where I'm looking at one now and Julian is a clear head taller than the other children. I, he's he's as tall as the adults. And he does, he, look, he looks like a middle-aged man. It, it added a, sort of like a jolly little extra in the book for us. But yeah, please don't think we're making fun of it because we do love these books, but... Julian is just so tall. Obviously, there are references to Julian being very mature, but still being a child. But I think even he would not go hiking in a full three-piece suit. (laughs) No, he's more sensible than that. Actually, that reminds me, I wanted to say earlier, there's a description of him that I really liked. And this is from much later in the book, but I'll read it now while we're still talking about Julian. And this is when... Maggie is talking to him and it says she couldn't make Julian out he looked a youngster and yet his manner was anything but childish she was rather afraid of him um I like that because I think that is very Julian but also she it's clearly saying he looks a youngster and in some of these pictures he doesn't he looks like he's their dad (laughs) (laughs) oh bless it's because he's so sensible and he's always taking care of them it's aged him I think (laughs) Let's get on to chapter three. Let's. Julian has all the maps and they walk in the sun down a winding lane to Rabbit Hill. He's got this trip detailed. Timmy goes mad chasing rabbits and falls down a rabbit hole. He goes such a way that Anne has to half get in the hole to pull him out and has to do so by the legs. After that, Timmy is very subdued and George is worried, even though Timmy eats well at lunch. That's always a sign that people are okay but yeah you would you would be worried wouldn't you yeah I think so I felt a bit sorry for Anne then because she she's trying to pull Timmy out because nobody wants to lose him down a hole and George gets upset and says you're hurting him let him go and poor old Anne is thinks if she lets him go he's just going to go down deeper so she has to keep a hold of him and pull him out and then she feels bad later because she's hurt him but she did also save him so well done Anne Agreed. Well done, Anne. In chapter four, they're heading for Blue Pond Farm. And I've put in the notes, are we we going to discuss what Julian says to George? And I think we we should, because this gets used against Julian a lot for him being sexist or him being not thoughtful to how George wants to present herself. But when you're given what he says, you're never given how it ends. So I think it's only fair that we represent fully what he says. He is saying that when they get to a farmhouse, the girls will have a bedroom and they can sleep in a barn. And it's Anne that says that she'd like to sleep in a barn. And Julian says, no, you girls will have to be in the house. It gets cold at night. We've brought no rugs. We boys will be all right with our max over us. I'm not letting you two girls do that. It's stupid being a girl, said George, for about the millionth time in her life, always having to be careful when boys can do as they like. I'm going to sleep in a barn anyway, I don't care what you say, Jew. Oh yes, you do, said Julian. You know quite well that if you ever go against the orders of the chief, that's me, my girl, in case you didn't know it, you won't come out with us again. You may look like a boy and behave like a boy, but you're a girl all the same, and like it or not, girls have got to be taken care of. I should have thought that boys hated having to take care of girls, said George sulkily, especially girls like me who don't like it. 
Well, decent boys like looking after their girl cousins or their sisters, said Julian, and oddly enough, decent girls like it. But I won't count you as a girl, George, decent or otherwise. I'll merely count you as a boy who's got to have an eye on him. My eyes, see? So take that look off your face and don't make yourself any more difficult than you already are. So he comes full circle by basically saying, I don't count you as a girl. I count you as a boy who needs to have an eye on him. Mm. A lot of the time, people use the first bit of that where Julian's saying, you have to do what I say, I'm the chief, girls have got to be taken care of. But they never include the bit where Julian says, I'll merely count you as a boy, which is all George wants. Yeah. When I was reading it, I was just getting really irritated at Julian, and I didn't even properly notice that bit where he says he counts her as a boy. So that that sort of passed me over, but it was decent of him to say. Oh, well, in which case, I'm glad I pointed it out then, because... You do get furious by that bit. Yeah, because it's, it's irritating because he's just saying, well, this is how it is because I say so and not giving either of the girls a fair chance to have the same adventure the boys are having, mm. even though they've shown in all the books that they're all capable of it. Absolutely. But then you get so irritated by the first bit, you don't realise the second bit. Yeah, true, true. He goes on a journey of discovery in a matter of sentences. He does. Yeah, it's like less than half a page. But he's he's come full circle. He's seen the error of his ways and he understands now to accept people for who they are. Agreed. But it's a conversation that should be had. And normally I would fight tooth and nail for George in a situation. But I do feel Julian was misrepresented. The first things that he said were bad. Mm and unacceptable and inaccurate but then he does acknowledge George represents herself as a boy yeah although in this hypothetical situation there's now three boys and one girl so is he still going to make Anne sleep inside the house in a bedroom on her own and the three of them will be outside he thinks he's doing the right thing by saying the girls should be inside we're men we can fend for ourselves but Actually, he's not doing anyone any favours and Anne wants to sleep in a barn and she'd be perfectly fine doing it. It's not George that starts all this. Well, at least they resolve it and they don't actually have to sleep in a barn at all. Apart from Dick has to sleep in a barn. Mm, Yeah, that's that's true. Poor, Poor Dick has to sleep in a barn on his own. Anyway, let's go back to Timmy because he's limping and George wants to see a vet. They arrive in Beacon's village and the lady at the inn advises them to go and see Mr. Gaston. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody familiar with Beauty and the Beast? No one. Vets like Gaston fixes dog legs like Gaston. I can't. I don't have them anymore. It was good though. In a barnyard nobody has veterinary knowledge like Gaston. Wow. Veterinary knowledge. (laughs) He knows about horses and dogs. He's half a mile up the hill in Spiggy House. Anne and Dick set off for Blue Pond Farm. George and Julian take Timmy to Spiggy House. A decision I never understood. No, and a bit later, actually, when we talk about the TV shows, I'm going to talk about how the amount of horror I've been watching recently really affects everything else I watch and I expect it to be terrifying. But 
Splitting up is always a bad idea. Even in, you know, Scooby-Doo. Don't split up. Just all go to see Mr. Gaston and then all go to Blue Pond Farm. Because in Chapter 5, it gets dark. Anne and Dick have had some bad directions and end up lost and wet. There's no light and they hear bells, a warning of some kind. Anne is worried that they might be long-ago bells. I loved the long-ago bells. I actually bookmarked that a little bit just because it tickled me so much. And when Anne's saying, um, the village was called Beacons, do you suppose it has that name? Because long ago there was a nearby hill where people lighted a beacon to send a warning to other towns telling them the enemy was coming. That's just all one sentence. She's in a, she's in a tizzy. And then she says, did they ring bells too? Are we hearing long ago bells, Dick? They don't sound like bells I've ever heard in my life before. And then bless Dick's sweet soul. He says, good gracious, they're certainly not long ago bells, said Dick, speaking cheerfully, though he was really just as puzzled and alarmed as Anne. Good job, Dick. When Anne, when Anne gets into her Mr. Luffy tizzies, she needs a, she needs a calm person around her, yeah. They reach a building and see an old lady inside. They knock, but she doesn't stir, so they walk in. She's totally deaf and scared that her son will see them, but Dick communicates that Anne needs somewhere to sleep. She gets put up in the attic, and Dick leaves to find a barn. There's a little attic window so Anne can talk to him. In chapter 6, Dick tells Anne to eat, get dry and sleep. Dick finds a barn. He waits for George and Julian to arrive. He believes he's at Blue Pond Farm, by the way. So, when they don't, he lies in the straw and goes to sleep. In the night, he hears a tapping and a hoarse voice whisper his name. Dick is baffled. Was it Julian? Couldn't be. The voice says he has a message from Naylor, and Dick tries to make his voice sound deep and grown up. The man gives him the message and a piece of paper, telling him that Maggie has the other one, and then he's gone. Dick isn't too sure that he's not dreaming, and as he's falling asleep again, another man appears, this time in the barn. He's muttering and waiting, and then he gets fed up and leaves. And what is the message, Jen? Two trees, gloomy water, saucy Jane. Brilliant. Maggie knows. In chapter 7, Dick wakes up and looks to Anne's window. She says she can hear the bad-tempered sun, so doesn't want to go down yet. Dick waits till he's out of the house and goes in to get her, but is confronted by the sun and realises it was the second man, the man who was waiting in the barn from last night. The man threatens him, so Dick has to pretend to leave. He gets Anne out eventually and they leave, realising it wasn't Blue Pond Farm. A passing boy tells them the house belongs to a Mrs Taggart and her son Dirty Dick, who is a terror. They head back to the inn where the nice lady was, hoping they can call Blue Pond Farm. As they get to the inn, the three shepherds, they see Timmy, George and Julian who were off to the police station to report them missing. Timmy is all mended and they go to the inn to have breakfast. In chapter 8, they eat breakfast and tell their tales. There's a very nice dog name alert in this section, which is Julian is joking now that Timmy is fat. That's his thing in this book, perhaps. He says, good thing Timmy's tummy has gone down today, or I was thinking of changing his name to Tummy. I think that Anne should have a dog called Cuddle and Julian should have a dog called Tummy. <laughs> tummy the dog. Yeah, it's a lovely name. We have to remember, 
And I don't know why I'm using this episode to stick up for Julian so much, but post-World War, nobody was chubby because they'd been rationing. Oh, of course, everybody was, yeah. So perhaps if you were fat, it was a more positive thing than it is calling somebody fat these days. That's true, yes. Well, he's only having a little joke and he made everyone, even George, laugh with his tummy joke. So then you know it's okay. George can laugh at a joke about Timmy. Absolutely. Mr. Gaston was very kind to them and to Timmy and they stayed for supper. When they got to Blue Pond Farm and Anne and Dick hadn't arrived, they were very worried. Then Anne and Dick tell their tale. Dick adds he had an odd experience which may have been a dream. Then Julian explains the bells they heard were from the prison to say a prisoner had escaped. Anne is horrified, and the inn lady says they haven't caught the man yet. As they leave the inn and walk, Julian says he wants to hear Dick's story to see if it was a dream or not. In chapter 9, Dick tells his story, and the others think it's a dream until he finds the piece of paper. Excellent. Anne works out why the stranger said Dick, because that's the name of the man he was waiting for, and Dick remembers what the boy called the bad-tempered son, Dirty Dick. George wonders if it's connected to the escaped prisoner. Julian reasons that Naylor is someone in prison and the prisoner took a message for him. They walk to the next village to find a police station. In chapter 10, the police officer isn't too friendly and doesn't believe them. In any case, the prisoner has been caught. He's very rude and even rips up their piece of paper. They head to a farm on the recommendation of a passing girl and over a huge meal they ask about two trees. It's a ruined house by the lake, which is called Gloomy Water. The lady warns them about the marshes there, but they head off anyway. In chapter 11, they find gloomy water on the map, but ask at the post office. The nice man tells them how the house burnt down. He marks marshes on the map to keep them safe and hires them out some rugs and ground sheets. Julian says to the others, if there's anything of interest at two trees, they might want to stay there. They buy supplies and off they hike, eventually reaching two trees and gloomy water, and Anne is a bit freaked out by the burnt-out old house. Which is a sensible reaction to that, I think. Do you know, I've just realised they actually hire ground sheets and rugs, and it doesn't say at the end that they return them, but I'm sure that they would because they're such good children. Well, they go back to the post office. Of course they do, yes. So I would have thought they returned them then. Good children. I knew I could count on them. In chapter 12, they search the house for shelter and find a mouldy room. Anne is dissatisfied and finds a much more suitable cellar, complete with candles and plates, and in the kitchen there's even a pump for water. They discuss what they might be looking for and decide it's stolen goods. They think the Saucy Jane sounds like the name of a boat. They stick the pieces of paper the policeman tore up back together and see four lines drawn meeting at the centre, said Julian. And at the outer end of each line, there's a word. So faintly written, I can hardly read one of them. What's this one? Tock Hill. And the next is Steeple. Whatever are the others? They made them out at last. Chimney, said Anne. That's the third. And Tall Stone is the fourth, said George. Whatever do they all mean? We shall never, never find out. We'll sleep on it, said Julian cheerfully. It's wonderful what good ideas come in the night. It will be a very interesting little problem to solve. There is a... I thought this is a pretty massive diss from Anne to George in this chapter. But you didn't mention it, so I wonder if maybe it didn't... You didn't think it was, but I would like to read it to you. 
this struck me. I felt Anne was, she was out of control. When they are sleeping in the cellar and they've got all their little bracken and heather beds down and they're all settling and then Anne speaks. So the only thing I don't like is the thought of those cellars beyond this little underground room, said Anne. I keep thinking that Maggie and her friends might be there waiting to pounce on us when we're asleep. You're silly, said George scornfully. Really silly. Do you honestly suppose that Timmy would lie here quietly if there was anyone in those cellars? You know jolly well he would be barking his head off. Yes, I know all that, said Anne, snuggling down in her heathery bed. It's just my imagination. You haven't got any, George, so you don't bother about imaginary fears. I'm not really scared while Timmy is here. I thought that was just, I would be very upset if someone said to me that I didn't have any imagination. And when Anne said that, I thought, whoa! But then I did also think about how I'm, you know, frightened of all the things that go bump in the night and you don't. And the real reason I'm frightened of things is because I'm always imagining what's the next worst thing. Whereas you, I don't know, you have a sensible way to stop that. It's not it's not a lack of imagination to not be afraid of the dark. But anyway, nobody, nobody took it badly and they end it laughing and going to sleep. But when I read that, I thought, wow, Anne, is she still hangry? Well, in... My defence, I don't get frightened of things because I've already imagined something much worse and prepared for it. And in George's defence, I don't suppose she is very imaginative. She is very practical. When she's on her own, she walks and she swims and she rows and she lights fires. Oh, that's true. She doesn't play imaginary games and she's never had anyone to play with when she was younger. So... I don't think she'd be too bothered about not being called imaginative. Yeah, she wasn't She wasn't too bothered in the book. And I was glad that she wasn't upset. No, I can't imagine that upsetting George. In chapter 13, they discuss whether they should hide if Maggie should turn up. But Julian says, no, there's no way she could know they know. They fall asleep with Timmy vigilantly guarding. And the next morning, the boys swim in the lake and they look for the saucy Jane. In chapter 14, they find a little boathouse with three boats in, one almost sunk and the other two are not the saucy Jane. They do see a raft. They try to get round the edge of the lake, but it's too overgrown and decide the raft would be a better idea. But then Timmy growls and they see a man and a woman. It's Maggie and Dirty Dick. Do you want to say about the names of the boats? Oh, yeah. I would like to know. Why all of the boats have alliterative names except Saucy Jane? Because when they read the boats, they're called Careful Carrie, Merry Meg and Cheeky Charlie. And then, well, it's quite obvious that Saucy Jane belongs to the family of boats here. Is it? No, I mean it is, but... My only thought is, if she wrote without notes and just wherever it took her... Enid Blyton would have written Saucy Jane first. Ah. That's my only thought. Other than that, I don't know. Jolly Jane? Before you start chapter 15, actually, because it's right at the start, I will say I liked the description of Maggie. They see her and it says, Anne and George didn't like the look of the woman. She was wearing trousers and had a jacket draped around her shoulders. She was also wearing sunglasses and smoking a cigarette. She walked quickly and they could hear her voice. It was sharp and determined. So that's Maggie, thought Julian. Well, I don't like her. She looks hard as nails. I mean, she actually sounds really (laughs) cool, but... 
She does sound cool. Yeah, but I mean, but for the for those children, that's it's probably quite an intimidating, tough woman. But yeah, when I read that, I was like, oh, she sounds awesome. But she's not. She's a baddie. <laughs> and Julian tells them they're to walk right past them and act like harmless children. <laughs> they talk to Maggie and Dirty Dick, who tell them to clear off. But Julian points out it's not their property and they've got as much right to be there as them. No one would argue with the five with Timmy guarding them and the couple back down. They then see them go out on the lake, so they follow them on the raft. In chapter 16, Timmy is not a big raft fan. They work out how to paddle and head for the couple's boat. Dirty Dick and Maggie seem to wise up to this and row around a lot to tie them out. The children give up and lie on the raft for a rest until Timmy jumps in the water, looking very pleased with himself. George accuses Dick of pushing him, but as they row back, Anne sees the tall stone that's marked on the map. And do you think that Dick did push Timmy? Because I wasn't sure when I read it. I don't think he did. If he did, he didn't do it intentionally. But if you look at the front cover, certainly of our books, <laughs> there is not a lot of space on that raft for three grown adults and Anne and Timmy. <laughs> No, there really isn't. Yes, and I suppose Timmy does like to swim, doesn't he? It was just the way it did. I wasn't sure if Dick did push him or if he didn't, and then he was just teasing George. I I think if Dick had pushed him in, Dick would have said that he had. That's true, yeah, he's an honest boy. And I think he would have been a bit sad that he did. Oh, Timmy, I didn't mean to push you in, but you are so annoying when you jump on people's tummies. Yes. In chapter 17, they return to the house and Timmy growls and the children realise their food has been stolen. Julian rushes out to tick them off and he and Timmy find two small tents. When Julian returns, they realise Timmy has brought a tin of biscuits with him and then he heads back and takes cake and pork pie and ham. Dirty Dick shouts at them, but he's too scared of Timmy to do anything. They look at the map once more, and suddenly it all becomes clear. What did you think of Timmy taking the food? Well, I really liked it. A little bit before that, when they realised all the food was gone, I'd put a note in my book saying that's actually against the rules of being a baddie in Anina Blyton, at least in Famous Five. You can't... Of course! You can't not feed the children. And taking food from them, that's even worse. So I was a bit... I was a bit stunned by that. Um, I did, I did like when Timmy um took the food. It was very funny, and I like how you know they they sort of indulge it. And Timmy's just such a good, he's just such a good boy. He's got such good morals. The children couldn't imagine how Timmy had stopped himself from eating some of the ham on his way. And Dick says, "Fancy carrying it in his mouth and not even tasting a bit." Tim's a better person than I am. I'd just have to have a lick. <laughs> and then and then Julian says, Oh, we you know, we should stop him. We're getting a bit too much in exchange. Oh, do see what he brings back this time, begged Anne. Then stop him. It's just it's brilliant. It's it's excellent. That's that was probably my favourite bit of the book when Timmy just trots back and forth bringing them all the food. Such a good boy. Bless him. Yeah, and then he has ham and scones and a slice of cake for dinner. An excellent dog dinner. In chapter 18, Dick says there must be a spot on the lake where you can see Tock Hill and Tall Stone and Chimney and Steeple, and that's where the loot is. They agree to get up as soon as it's light, and they do. They find the spot, and Julian marks it. They look down and see the outline of a boat. The Saucy Jane! The Saucy Jane! 
I do like how in this chapter it's very important to them that they get up very quickly and they're going to go and uh, you know they've got heaps to do. But when they when Timmy wakes them up, it says they washed hurriedly, combed out their hair, cleaned their teeth, and tried to brush down their clothes and got ready some snacks for them: ham, scones, and a piece of shortbread each. They all had a drink of water and then they were ready to go. I feel like they've taken like <laughs> half an hour. And I mean, my first thought was actually they could just run out and eat a piece of biscuit on the way and not brush their teeth. And then I thought, no, that's not that's not what these children would be like. But I did I did like it that it's like, oh, we've got to get up early and get going. And then they do a list of 10 things and have a massive breakfast. That's called priorities. <laughs> and I approve. I'm not sure if it's now or a little bit later on, but they do the washing up. <laughs> but they don't have anything to dry the plates with. Now, they each have a flannel. Oh, they do. I can't see why you wouldn't use a flannel. I'm sure it would be dry. Yeah. Anyway, never mind. Maybe they'd already washed their armpits with the flannels and they didn't want to use them to dry things. Oh, armpits. Well, I mean, they've got to stay clean, haven't they? They're good, nice children. True. In Chapter 19, Maggie and Dirty Dick are on their way. They ram the raft and shout angrily at the children. But when they realise that the children will be gone the next day, they row back to shore. George says they can't get the saucy Jane up to get the treasure. Julian says they just need to find the bag or the box, and as he's a star swimmer, <laughs> he's going to dive. Anne says, I think you're brave. And Julian, in a moment of humbleness, says, don't talk rubbish. The loot is too heavy and they need a rope, so they will return. At night. Ooh, that's when you know this is the you know the the best bit of the adventures coming because it's night time and they have to go outside. Hoo-hoo. It's tricky though because they've tried to wake up as soon as it's light and then now they've got to wait until it's dark. Yeah, yeah. And but they don't just wait till it's dark; they wait till about eleven o'clock. I get they're waiting for the adults to go to sleep. I guess. I suppose so. In chapter twenty. They return to the house to wait for darkness. Yes, and they all want to go to sleep, and Anne says she won't be able to snooze because she's too excited. And Dick says, don't snooze then, just have a rest and wake us up at the right time. And then Anne has sort of a strange little existential moment here. So it says, Anne was the only one who didn't fall into a comfortable doze. She lay awake, thinking of this new adventure of theirs. Some children always had adventures, and some didn't. Anne thought it would be much nicer to read about adventures than to have them. But then probably the ones who only read about them simply longed to have the adventures themselves. It was all very difficult. Bless her. Big thoughts for a little girl. Maybe in book 21 we realise that Anne wrote all these books. You know, like with the Sherlock Holmes books, they're all written by Dr Watson. Uh-huh. Wouldn't that be great if it revealed that it was Anne that wrote them all this time? That would be great. They fetch a rope from the boathouse, and on the lake, they find the marker that Julian left earlier on. Anne says, there's the chimney now. We've got them all in view. We should be near our mark. We are, said Dick, pointing to a dark little bobbing thing nearby, the cork in the box. How extremely clever we are. I really have a great admiration for the five. Idiot, said Julian. And that's Dick's role in the five, isn't it? Yeah. I really have admiration for us. Aren't we wonderful? We're the famous five, although we're not quite there yet. No. But we are the five. Yeah, he's always 
He's always buoying them up. Dick keeps everyone afloat, even in the scary bit. Julian and Dick dive, and they tie the bag up with the rope and surface. In chapter 21, they pull up the sack with difficulty and let it drag through the water as they return to shore. Back at the house, they open it and find jewels. The necklace is stolen from the Queen of Felonia worth over £100,000. The Queen of Felonia, who was in the news. I loved the Queen of Felonia. And a visiting princess, because not all the jewels could possibly be the Queen of Felonia's. (laughs) The Queen of Felonia. They don't want to see that rude police officer, so they plan to ring Mr Gaston, who will tell them a good police station. The children fall asleep with Julian feeling very rich. (laughs) In chapter 22, the final chapter, they've stuffed the jewels safely into their rucksacks and they set off. It will be a lovely walk across the moors, said Anne as they went along. I feel like singing now everything's turned out all right. The only thing is, nobody at school will believe George or me when we tell them what's happened. We shall probably be set a composition to do... What did you do on your half term? said George. And Miss Peters will read ours and say, quite well written, but rather far fetched, don't you think? So even the teachers don't believe them. No, I guess they probably think that they're just sort of like the annoying children in the class who've always got something to say and it's obviously really made up, except it actually isn't. Then they see Maggie and Dirty Dick rushing to cut them off. George realises they've seen the jewellery boxes and bags in the cellar and know they have the treasure. But of course, they don't know about the marshes and they get stuck and injured. The five telephone Mr Gaston from the post office whilst they return the rugs and ground sheet. Uh Uh-huh. And he collects them in his car and takes them to the police station. The police officer was amazed and shook their hands and let them clean up. They needed to be back at school for three and the detective tells them not to worry. And then they get their name. Yeah. He saw them into the car. Timmy, too. Goodbye, he said, and saluted them all smartly. I'm proud to have met you. Good luck to you, Famous Five. Yes, good luck to you, Famous Five. And may you have many more adventures. Hooray. The end. The end. Well, what a whirlwind that book was at the end. Everything happens in the last chapter. So that was five on a hike together. And yes, like we've said, the last sort of three chapters, everything happens. It's madness. Yeah, because it's quite a gentle adventure before then. You know, we have the strange bit where Dick receives the mysterious message, but we don't we don't have any sort of face to face with any of the villains. And they go to a slightly creepy location and paddle around in a lake and they meet the baddies. But they're sort of in the disguise as harmless children. So the baddies don't suspect them. Good disguise. Great disguise. Yeah, and then and then everything just happens in the last the last three chapters. You know, they they've realised where the treasure is, they go out, they dive and get it, they bring it up, they realise it's the Queen of Felonia's jewels, and then uh, they make their escape. The other thing we haven't discussed is why don't the boys get an October holiday? When has that been a thing? And also, how can two boys getting a scholarship and a medal mean the whole school get a day and a half off? I have no idea the answer to either of those questions, to be honest. I thought, like you said, it was kind of a convoluted way to start the story. Which wasn't necessary, really. I suppose it gave them a bit more impetus to try and find the treasure because they had to be back by Tuesday. Yeah. 
Anything else you want to say about five on a hike together? Uh, no, actually, I think we've covered everything. Let's move on. In this section, we talk about the two TV adaptations that exist, the one from the 1990s and the one from the 1970s. And there's something rather unique and unusual about these two episodes is that they were both written or adapted, I should say, by the same writer, Richard Carpenter. Oh. He adapted the version in the 70s, and then in the 90s he adapted it again, which is really interesting. That is. Because if you look at the differences between the two episodes, I'm going to talk about them both intermingled. I usually do it very separate, but because it's the same writer, I think compare and contrast is quite interesting. So in the 70s, Timmy doesn't get hurt at all. All five are sleeping in the barn, but only Dick wakes up. George wears an odd camouflage fishing hat through most of it, but that's irrelevant. They go on a raft and dive for the treasure. You know, they're diving in the lake, which they don't do in the 90s version. In the 90s version, they use a boat and they also find the saucy Jane under a lot of bushes and trees. And you have to wonder whether health and safety rules had changed and also, I believe the actor that played Julian, we talked about this on Five Go Off in a Caravan, he'd broken his leg. So in this, uh, according to something I was reading, he's cut out quite a bit and not as active as Julian normally is. Mm-hmm. However, linked with the fact that Julian in the illustrations of this book looks rather old, Julian in the 1990s version looks rather old as well as do dick and george they all look like they've grown up over the two series and are perhaps a little bit too old to be playing the five now oh in the 90s version timmy does get injured and he does end up going to the vets so they do split up in neither version is the old the deaf old lady whose name escapes me now In the 70s, there's a through plot where Dick's watch is broken and he can't accurately tell the time. So when they go to the police and say they saw the convict, he says what time it was, which I think is sort of 2am, but they realise that that's because his watch is broken and it's still 2am on his watch now. So that's why the police don't believe them. And Julian Uh, says, we'll just have to solve this mystery ourselves. They will. In the 90s version, it's actually a lot less overdramatic than usual. And the clips I've chosen are just very, very short clips of the message being given by the convict. So in this clip from the 1990s, George Sweeney plays the convict and Paul Child is Dick. It was written by Richard Carpenter and it was directed by John Gorey. He says, Maggie knows. He said to leave this for you. Maggie's got hers already. Hangman's out, dark water, 
Saucy Jane. I'm off. Yeah, this is the bit I was talking about earlier where I have been watching so much horror recently that now everything I watch, I think it's going to be horror. So when in the nine in this 90s clip, when our dick is in the barn and then the real dirty dick comes in, I was so on edge because I thought this is going to end so badly. Something awful is going to happen. It's going to be really jumpy. Dick's going to get caught. Then I had to remind myself that A, I know the storyline and that's not going to happen. And B, this is a children's show and that's not going to happen. But it was funny. Yeah, it's that idea, I suppose, of what you're used to. And if you watch a lot of horror, you kind of get used to the pattern of um, a genre. And of course, he would definitely be caught in that respect. But no, not in this one. No. Not in this one. You have to remember that the baddies, they're not very capable. No, no, they're not. They usually break their legs, so. Yes, absolutely. In fact, in the 90s and the 70s version, the baddies are fairly pantomimical. Yeah. If that's a word. If not, just invented it. Oh, I love it. And so this clip is from the 1970s. Again, Richard Carpenter wrote it. Mike Connor directed it. Frank Ellis as Williams, the convict, he gets a name. Gary Russell as Dick, with extra Marcus Harris as Julian. Dick. Dick. Jimmy. Dick, are you there? Who is it? Williams, of course. I got the message from Naylor. Two trees, gloomy water, saucy Jane. Here. Maggie knows already. I gave her the other one. Okay? I'm off. And a note to the 1940s, Julian. All four of them sleep in the barn without any thought to the contrary. Oh, well done. Well done, that Julian. So what have we learned from Five on a Hike Together? I've learned to always pack extra socks. Jewellery robbers are the commonest type of robbery with big criminals. A man who buys blancmange powder will not be relevant to the story one bit. And coney is a country word for rabbit. But after I read that, I thought, what if I'm going to say this is something I've learned and it's not true? So I did look it up and I found a funny little thing about it. So I just gave it a little Google, coney and rabbit, what's the difference? And I found an article, and it's, it's a language website, and it's asking, are the words coney and rabbit full synonyms in English? And there's a big, lovely description, which I won't read all of, but it's saying that rabbit and hare used to commonly be known as conies, 
but that's not a common a common use anymore. Most people wouldn't know what it was. And also in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, conies are mentioned about five or six times. And on this message forum, somebody's written summary. Unless you're a chef or a Tolkien fanatic, coney is an unrecognisable word to the great majority of English speakers. If a rabbit runs in front of you and you say, look at that coney, everyone else will say, what's a coney? Is it behind that rabbit? (laughs) Yeah, I liked that too. (laughs) So there we are. So coney is a word for rabbit, but if you say it, nobody's going to know what you mean unless you're with Julian. Fair enough. Who is the hero of the book? I felt that it was Julian. Agreed. In this book. Okay, lovely. Because he he had sort of a few questionable moments where I felt he was a bit over bossy. But I do love that he takes it so seriously that he is the big boy and he's in charge. So well done, uh, Julian. Oh, he won in book eight as well. So he's doing very well for himself. Natural born leader, that boy. Um, so next time it's going to be book 11. And what can we expect? In five, have a wonderful time. Ooh. You can expect the reappearance of an old friend. <gasps> Sooty Lenoir. Not Sooty Lenoir. I've already told you Sooty doesn't come back and I know you're very sad about it. I know. I love Sooty. The only other... Well, these are people who have got honorary mentions so they're characters I can remember. Is it Cecil, dear love? Hold on. Do you want me to say yes or no in case it spoils it? Oh, yeah, no. No, no, no. Yeah, don't, because I, I wouldn't want you to spoil it for me, and I definitely wouldn't want you to okay. spoil it for other people who uh, maybe don't remember the books and are looking forward to a, an old friend. So it's not Sooty Lenoir, but it is an old who friend. Who else have you got a special mention, just out of interest? Cecil Dearlove. Mr. Luffy, Ragamuffin Joe, and Sooty. What a gang. <laughs> 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 what a gang. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Famous5Pod. And we've got a website which is... It's www.famous5pod.wordpress.com Brilliant. You can drop us an email. The address is famous5pod at gmail.com Thank you so much to everybody who gets in contact with us. We absolutely love it. And thank you for people who have reviewed us on iTunes. If you'd like to do that, that's great. If not, just maybe tell a friend because we'd we'd love people who enjoy The Famous Five to be able to come along and listen and share our love of The Five books. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And remember, you can be a lifelong fan since childhood, like Katie, or you can be a new fan aged 32. Or actually, now I'm 33. You know, 30s. A 30s-year-old adult who comes to them for the first time and realises that they're awesome. So everybody's welcome. Absolutely. Old, young, if you're reading these to your children, fantastic. We want to hear about it because we're really interested in how you got into the Famous Five, when you got into them, and why you still love them now. Yes, definitely. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Famous Five podcast. And please join us next month for more adventures. Goodbye. Goodbye.